Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled The Coming of the Son of Man, Disbelief, Voyeuristic Violence, or Future Redemption, and is based upon the lectionary text for Sunday, December 3rd, 2006, the first Sunday in Advent. Next Sunday, Christians around the world begin the season of Advent, a time when we commemorate the Adventus of Jesus, that is, his coming, arrival, or birth into the world. Sometime around the 6th century, the tradition emerged to set aside four weeks before Christmas, beginning with the Sunday closest to St. Andrew's Day on November 30th, as a period to look both backwards and forwards. Believers look backwards in celebration of the birth of Jesus to that time and place when we believe that, according to 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the cosmos to himself. In her poem, The Mystery of the Incarnation, Denise Levertov, whose father was a Hasidic Jew who converted to Christianity and then became an Anglican pastor, captures the miracle of this first coming of Jesus. Listen to Levertov's poem. It's when we face for a moment the worst our kind can do, and shudder to know the taint in our own selves, that awe cracks the mind's shell and enters the heart, not to a flower, not to a dolphin, to no innocent form, but to this creature vainly sure it and no other is godlike, God, out of compassion for our ugly failure to evolve, entrusts as guest, as brother, the word. At Advent, Christians also look forward in expectation to Christ coming again, to that time when we believe that God will culminate what he has now only inaugurated, when he will finish what he has started and will fulfill what he has promised. Three of the four lectionary readings this week speak of a future restoration or consummation of human history. Future restoration in a messianic age, in a second coming, are prominent themes deeply embedded in the Hebrew Old Testament, the Christian New Testament, and the earliest Christian creeds. Celebrating Christmas and the past history of the Incarnation at Bethlehem seems easy enough. But how should we speak about expectation and anticipation of future fulfillment? Unbelievers respond to scenarios of the end times with disbelief and derision, while Christians can cloud the picture with sensationalism, date-setting, and fictional novels characterized by what Barbara Rossing calls quote-unquote, voyeuristic violence. I don't find the disbelief of atheists like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris unsettling and certainly not compelling. In fact, every person can be certain about some end-time scenarios. I've come to think of the end-time of history in four ways. If you're a man living in Liberia, your life expectancy at birth is 39 years. 
If you're lucky enough to be born a woman in Japan, then you can expect to live 84.7 years. Then comes what you might consider your personal end. And whether late or soon, your personal end will surely come. Environmental experts like Jared Diamond and his book Collapse speak of civilizational death. His case studies show how some very advanced civilizations have vanished. And so, without major course corrections, many social scientific studies predict apocalyptic scenarios due to nuclear weapons, global warming, population growth in places that can least sustain it, overconsumption of limited fossil fuels, massive economic inequalities, large-scale displacements of populations, famines, and wars. And it would be thus foolish to think that our own civilization will last forever. If we expand our view, we can even think about the Earth's end. The end of the Earth is just as certain, but will take longer. My friend and solar physicist Charles says that in about five billion years, the Sun will expand to ten million times its present volume, a red giant that will incinerate and eventually swallow the Earth. And then fourth, as for the cosmic end of the entire universe, physicists are divided but equally bleak. If the expansion of the Big Bang continues to propel everything outward, our galaxies will fly apart forever, although individual galaxies will collapse into black holes. On the other hand, if the forces of gravity prevail, the expanding universe will eventually reverse its expansion and collapse into what physicists like to call a big crunch. It's as sure as can be, writes the physicist and Anglican priest John Polkinghorne, that humanity in all forms of carbon-based life will prove a transient episode in the history of the cosmos. And so several ends await us, personal, civilizational, global, and cosmic. But then what? What comes after the end? No one knows. No one can even know. Any position you take constitutes an act of faith. In his review of The God Delusion by the atheist Richard Dawkins, Jim Holt thus observes that short of a miraculous occurrence, the only thing that might resolve the matter is an experience beyond the grave. If the after-death options are either a beatific vision of God or annihilation and oblivion with no God, then, says Holt, it's poignant to think that believers will never discover that they are wrong, whereas Dawkins and fellow atheists will never discover that they are right. Barbara Rossing suggests that what ends at the end is not the earth or the cosmos which God created, loves, and will redeem, but the oikumene, which she translates as the imperial world, that is, all the systems of domination, exploitation, and subjugation that so many peoples of the earth experience right now. This is precisely the sort of scenario that the prophet Jeremiah preached to Judah in the wake of national disaster 
and deportation to pagan Babylon in 586 BC. The days are coming, writes Jeremiah, when prosperity will replace calamity, when future restoration will overcome present desolation. That time, Jeremiah says, will be a time of health and healing, security and safety, abundant prosperity, joy, gladness, thanksgiving, and forgiveness. See Jeremiah 33. In the Gospel this week, Jesus describes a day when redemption draws near for what he calls the whole earth. Luke 21 verses 28 and 35. We need not know the details of the last days or second coming described by Jeremiah, Jesus, or Paul. I like C.S. Lewis's analogy of actors in a very real drama. We don't know everything about the play, whether we're in the first or the last act, or even which characters play the minor and major roles. In our ignorance, we really have no idea when the end of the play ought to come. But the plot will find fulfillment, even if our limited understanding right now obscures it. Perhaps the author of the drama will fill us in after it's over, but for now, writes Lewis, quote, playing it well is what matters infinitely, end quote. And so in Luke's gospel this week, Jesus exhorts his followers, in Lewis's words, to play it well. He warns us that just as we know that summer is near when certain flowers bloom, we should not let the anxieties of life weigh us down so that the end, quote, closes on you unexpected like a trap. Rather, he tells us to live carefully, to watch, and to pray that we may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Luke 21, 34-36 And now for further reflection. Why do you think potboiler fiction like the Left Behind books are so wildly successful? What has been your experience of Christian end times teaching? How do you think history might end? See Romans chapter 8, 18 to 27. And finally, see the book by Barbara Rossing, The Rapture Exposed, The Message of Hope in the Book of Revelation. For books this week, I review a book entitled Become What You Are, Spiritual Formation According to the Sermon on the Mount by William Klein, Tyrone, Georgia, Authentic Publishing, 2006, 238 pages. I read this book while ending a business relationship that had gone very bad and very expensive. I still have a few notes that I took on the radically subversive words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. To deride a person as a fool is as bad as murder. Settle matters quickly with those from whom you are estranged. Be merciful. Don't swear falsely or bear false witness. Don't resist an evildoer. 
and give to those who ask of you. Or maybe I kept thinking I should go to court, get even, get my due, and make that person pay. No wonder that at the very end of Jesus' provocative preaching, we read in Matthew 7, 28 and 29, the crowds were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. New Testament scholar William Klein of Denver Seminary has written a simple exposition of the Sermon on the Mount that sparkles as a model of clarity, accessibility, and, most important of all, practical application. His goal for his readers does not stop with theological information. He aims for genuine transformation, or what he calls spiritual formation, from the inside out, what he calls a change at the inner center of our being. The Sermon on the Mount, writes Klein, is, quote, the quintessential explanation of who God's people are and what he desires them to become, end quote. After an introductory chapter and a chapter on the setting of the Sermon on the Mount, Klein spends eight chapters expounding and applying the text. Each of these chapters begins with a brief analysis of the text, often no more than a page or two, then ends with applications, questions for real-life practice, and personal reflections. Footnotes and bibliographical materials are modest but adequate for his purposes. I especially enjoyed his provocative questions. For example, how would my financial giving change if God alone knew what I gave? Klein also enhances his message by sharing some of his own successes and failures in spiritual formation concerning praying, fasting, anxiety, and other similar common experiences. Like any good book, Klein leaves you wanting to dig deeper. Just when might a Christian consider divorce? Why do we not invoke the death penalty for adultery, as in the Old Testament? Exactly what is a pure heart, and how does one attain a pure heart? How does one judge wisely, but avoid judgmentalism? I've always appreciated fine scholars like Klein who, in addition to their technical scholarship, write for the ordinary faithful Christians, all of whom will benefit by considering this guide through these most famous words of Jesus. Become what you are, spiritual formation according to the Sermon on the Mount by William Klein. For film this week, I review Kinky Boots from the year 2005. Like its offbeat predecessor, Calendar Girls, this comedy will not appeal to everyone, but I thought it was one of those rare films that was the most hilarious and poignant. When his father dies, much to his chagrin, Charlie Price inherits the family's 100-year-old shoe factory. Foreign imports and changing styles have pushed the Price shoe factory to the brink of insolvency until Charlie's chance encounter with the drag queen Lola. Whereas over the previous hundred years they had made what he calls a range of shoes for men, they then switch to making what he calls shoes 
for a range of men. More specifically, shoes for women that are men. An unlikely friendship develops between Charlie and Lola, each of whom struggles with their own unique loneliness and father relationships. With Lola as a consultant, the blue-collar factory workers of Northampton learn about London fashion, and to their credit, retool the factory with gusto to storm the Milan Shoe Festival with their sturdy stilettos. The DVD blurb advises that the film is, quote, inspired by a true story. And not to worry, the film is rated PG-13. Kinky Boots. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem called The Nativity by Christopher Harvey, who lived from 1597 to 1663. Unfold thy face, unmask thy ray, shine forth, bright sun, double the day. Let no malignant misty fume nor foggy vapor once presume to interpose thy perfect sight this day, which makes us love thy light forever better, that we could that blessed object once behold, which is both the circumference and center of all excellence. Or rather neither, but a treasure unconfined without measure, whose center and circumference, including all preeminence, excluding nothing but defect and infinite in each respect, is equally both here and there and now and then and everywhere, and always one, himself the same, a being far above a name. Draw near then and freely pour forth all thy light into that hour, which was crowned with his birth and made heaven envy earth, let not his birthday clouded be by whom thou shinest and we see. The Nativity by Christopher Harvey Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net a weekly webzine for the global church for Sunday, December 3rd, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.